Hey, everybody. Welcome back to STEM Fatale, your women in science history podcast. I'm... <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm Dr. Emma Dilemma coming at you hot in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Dr. Emlyn Gremlin not eating after right. midnight. Mm-hmm. Great. So we're going to just jump right in to part two of our two-part series on Marie Curie. And to set the stage, we're going to give you a little recap of what we learned last time. So Marie and her sister, Branya began attending a secret night school for women. Ooh. Once her father and Branya and herself had had made enough money for her to go to school, um, she moved to Paris. And some of the stories about this time suggest that she even fainted from hunger because she was too absorbed in her work to remember to eat food. There she was. And so in Marie, he found an intellectual equal who was also equally devoted to science. And he was like, yes, Amazing. you and me, let's They're do so this. sweet together. And professors who reviewed her doctoral thesis, which was about radiation, obviously, mm -hmm. declared that it was the greatest single contribution to science ever <laughs> written. In 1903, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to both Pierre and Marie yeah. Curie and Henry Becquerel for, quote, their joint researches on the radiation phenomena discovered by Professor Henry right. Becquerel. Yeah. So she yeah. got it. She's the first woman to receive a Nobel Prize. It was awesome. It was yeah. well-deserved. This is the second part of our two-part episode on Marie Curie's life. So we resume after it was announced that the Nobel Prize in physics was going to both Marie and Pierre Curie. So conspicuously absent was the Curie's discovery of polonium mm -hmm. and radium. So it's not mentioned at all in the Nobel yeah. Prize Award. And that was because the nominating committee insisted that they might deserve a second Nobel Prize in chemistry down the yeah. line if the evidence for those two elements became really yeah. robust. Mm -hmm. Which, spoiler, <laughs> it does. Unfortunately, both Curies were too unwell to travel to Stockholm yeah. for the ceremony. And so kind of part of the rules of getting this award is you have to give a talk about your research at some point. So later on, they finally made the trip in 1905, and Pierre delivered a speech on their joint research, again, because she was not allowed to give the speech. But he was careful to differentiate between Marie's work and their joint work to give her due credit for the things that she did alone. What a good, what a good dude. Yeah, I mean, they were both very supportive of each other. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think he really loved her and valued her and, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a, a sexy <laughs> feminist. Maybe. I don't know if that's true. I don't but, know either. <laughs> I mean, the, the sexy's true, but. So, at the awards ceremony, the president of the Swedish Academy, which administers the Nobel Prize, quoted the Bible in his remarks about the Curie's research, and he said, quote, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. I guess with the idea that, like, Marie was Pierre's helpmeet, which means, like, helper. Yeah. I mean, it. yeah, I read that, too. It's, it's just, like, a sexist. very strange. 
yeah, it's just like a very strange thing to say. I'm sure that contributed to also the common notion that she was his helper and like Mm -hmm. kind of he did most of the work. Yeah. Which is not true. Uh, And according to one of Marie's great friends and another fellow female physicist, uh, Hertha Arten, she said, errors are notoriously hard to kill, but an error that ascribes to a man what was actually the work of a woman has more lives than a cat. So true. The story of our whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. So the the prize money changed the Curie's lives. They used some of it for lab work and for hiring a full-time, you know, paid mm-hmm. lab assistant for the first time. Pierre was given a professorship at the Sorbonne, but only was given a he was only given a lab still after he rejected their first off- I know. offer. Lab space is extremely hard to come by Which apparently. Which is weird. It's just like just uh, like they what? Don't have buildings? Like Where are we supposed to do, where are they supposed to do research know. if you don't give them a lab? I don't understand. Um, And so Marie, for the first time in her life, would have a scientific Mm -hmm. title and get paid for it. So she became the chief of laboratory and had a university salary. And then at this point, Pierre was finally elected to the French Academy Mm -hmm. of Sciences. So, like, I guess you got a Nobel Prize. Right. It's like, who does the French Academy of Sciences think they are? (laughs) Like... (laughs) Who do you I'm think I'm going to talk are? about them too and I'm just like who do you think you uh-huh. are? <laughs> the French did not treat them very I'm well, ready. honestly. No, yeah, they did not. It was weird. Mm-hmm. They did not. Um yeah, it's kind of bizarre. I'm not yeah, sure why. It is weird. Well, yeah. But along with the the Nobel Prize the good came with the bad. So journalists and photographers pretty much stalked them at work and at their home. And so for during like the next year, they both felt like they didn't get any productive science done because they were constantly like dodging reporters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're very, I feel like, especially Marie, like a very quiet, like just kind of head down, get my research done. Yeah. Like not having people stalk her and like want to interview her all the time they just wanted to do their science and live their simple science life together yeah the last thing before it's your turn so in december 1904 marie had their second daughter eve maybe maybe you'll mention this but marie had grown accustomed like Having already had Irene before, she had grown accustomed to the disdain of colleagues who thought she spent too much time in the lab and not enough time mm-hmm. at home. Just the ever-pressing battle for women yeah. scientists of, like, doing it all, blah, blah. So, for instance, a friend and collaborator of hers once said to her, Don't you love Irene? He asked. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me that I wouldn't prefer the idea of reading a paper by Ernest Rutherford to getting what my body needs and looking after such an agreeable little girl. What the hell does that mean? (laughs) What's wrong with people? (laughs) Keep your thoughts to yourselves. (laughs) I know. I know. That's so crazy. Stop talking to me. Um, Yeah. Anyway, so that's my last thing. Yeah, so they have Eve, and their life is kind of chaotic for those years following the Nobel Prize, as you were just saying, with the paparazzi mm-hmm. following them everywhere. And honestly, it didn't get <laughs> any less chaotic. I mean, so Pierre comments quite a bit during this time 
um, that he really wasn't able to get a lot of research done. And in, let's see, 1906, their life is finally getting back to normal after all of this chaos following their Nobel win. But it wouldn't be normal for long because on Thursday, April 19th, 1906, a very rainy day in Paris, Pierre, who seemingly was just not looking both ways, walked into the middle of a busy street and was struck by a horse-drawn wagon that was killing uh that was that oh, was God. carrying a bunch of military uniforms. Um and he was killed. Oh god. Yeah. So I feel like there's maybe like I feel like a lot of people maybe think he died from the radiation, but it was really just this random accident. Because mm-hmm. he was sick all the time. I knew he was in yeah. a car accident. I didn't realize I didn't know anything about yeah. it though. And so Marie was obviously really shocked and heartbroken. She has a nine year old and a two year old mm-hmm. at this point. And but after talking to his brother or her brother-in-law, she went back to work like two days later because they were like, that's what Pierre would have wanted. <laughs> uh-huh. And probably dis- is yeah, a distract- like all she knew. Yeah. And so Ugh. let's see. But so first the French government offered her a widow's salary, which she declined saying that she could support herself. Which, like, okay, like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, would I, I would probably just take it and then still work if that's, I don't know, why not? <laughs> if, I don't know if there's like stipulations yeah, or something, but, um, but about a month later after that, the Sorbonne offered her peer's position itself. So this was his professor position, which included lecturing and research and everything, and she took it. And she took it in hopes that she could develop a lab that he would be proud of. So still just this goal of getting their lab space. Yeah. But in taking this position, <laughs> the, struggle. the struggle for space. Um, in taking this position, she became the first female professor ever at the University of Paris. And then when she began teaching. So many I know, firsts. And when she began teaching later that year. Hundreds of people lined up outside of the university hoping to get into her lecture. So, like, this includes newspapers oh, and, you know, just random people, right? Um, which apparently was quite That's a, yeah, it was stressful. quite a dry lecture. <laughs> just about, I mean, it was like a <laughs> physics lecture, you know? She didn't, yeah, she yeah, wasn't. Yeah. There's not yeah. a lot of pizzazz. It's just. Um, and so she began pretty soon after taking up this position to fundraise for this dream radiation or radium research lab of hers and Pierre's. And she was reaching out to politicians, professors, other people in the French elite. And she eventually got enough money to start what's called the Radium Institute, of which she would head the radioactivity research section while another professor would head the medical research section. In the meantime, her own personal research continued. So this is just she gets money for the institute, and they start building it, right? And this is going to take a long a long uh-huh. time to really come to fruition. Um, 
1906, yeah. the same year, a man named Lord Kelvin, who I think is like the Kelvin, like of Kelvin temperature. <laughs> oh. Yeah. He yeah, had yeah. been following the Curie's work for some time. And he reported on a theory of his that radium was not its own element, but instead a mixture of lead and helium. And she became really worried because if this was true, which she didn't think it was, um, it would disprove their original ideas about radioactivity. And so Marie was Uh like, okay, I need to show that radium is its own element she had previously isolated it as a salt but she was like i have to isolate it in the metallic form and so over the next four years Mm. she worked Mm -hmm. to do this where she literally would have to take like tons of these compound materials and just to isolate like what was it like thimbles full of radium basically and with the yeah. help of her colleague, Andre Debierne, which <laughs> neither of us could say his name, um, she was eventually able to <laughs> isolate the radium metal by 1910. But that took them four years. 1910 was a very busy year for, for Marie Curie. 1910, 1911. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> Things really get crazy. So... <laughs> She, uh-huh. I don't know anything about this because I just know the <laughs> aftermath. And so it's like there's just a lot. Everything. So first, her father-in-law okay. dies, and he had been a big support, you know, raising her kids and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just traumatic. She published a book called "The Treatise yeah. on Radioactivity." And she invented what's called the Curie, which is a standard unit of radioactivity. The Curie was not named by her or after her. It was named after her husband, Pierre. But she was the one who defined it at this meeting of a bunch of scientists. Gotcha. She was like, it can't be a really small amount of material and suggested that it should be um, the amount of radium Two 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 in equilibrium with one grand of its parent radium two two six. You know, I don't know if there's a physicist out there. Maybe that like <laughs> gets you excited hearing the different. Um, anyway, isotopes. Okay, well, um, but basically the Curie is like the standard unit of radioactivity, and she was assigned to prepare the world standard in her lab, which she did. And she also, the same year, she also became embroiled in some drama with the French Academy of Sciences, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is why I have such beef with them. So, okay. Yeah, well, we we all should. A seat opened up in the Academy of Sciences, (laughs) and which I'm like, why do they have to have a limited number of seats? Just give it to everybody who you want, you know. For exclusivity. Yeah, it's stupid. So she was an amazing science scientist, obviously. She'd already won a Nobel Prize. She's, like, starting this huge institute. Um, So she suggested herself as a candidate. However, up until, like, a week before – I don't know. I don't know the exact timeline of all this, but basically, like – a bunch of people in the press started saying that she should 
not be a part of the French Academy of Sciences because of like these weird, random, like xenophobic, anti-Semitic attitudes. Like the press started publishing articles about how she's Jewish and she's not from France and like she's not Jewish, by the way. So this was like just a weird trying to smear her like in the French against like these right wing French Catholic people. I don't know. It was really weird. <laughs> yeah. It's um, like an anti-Semitic slander yeah. against someone who's not Jew. It's very bizarre. And it was like, um, it's not clear if like it's because she was a woman or what, but like for some reason they wanted this other guy to get the seat. And he was not against Marie Curie. She was not against him. They were just like, he's French and he's Catholic, so he should be in the Academy of Sciences. It became this really public thing where the press showed up to the day the Academy of Sciences voted on this, and they had to vote twice because it was so close. And like, so eventually they voted for the guy. Because all these like tabloids were there and they just were like, it's too controversial to elect Marie Curie to the Academy of Sciences. So anyway, the French Academy so of Sciences bananas. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have, I have two points. Okay. One, yes, it's stupid. Just let them both in. Yeah. And two, I'm so surprised that she had to nominate herself. She has a Nobel frickin' prize. I know. And no one thinks she should... Nobody wants to claim her for the French Academy of Sciences? No. So bizarre. And things just get worse. My rant is over. (laughs) Okay, great. Perfect. I love it. But then they get better again, so don't worry, everybody. But okay. Okay, cool. It's a roller coaster of emotions. In 1911, so the next year, she's had a rough year. 1910 was busy. Some of it was good. She published her book, whatever. Some of it sucked. In 1911, the drama continued when rumors began that Marie was romantically involved with physicist Paul Langevin, who was a university scientist at the Sorbonne, and he was a former student of her husband, of her husband Pierre's. He was a friend of hers. He was a famous scientist in his own right, like a collaborator of Albert Einstein. Um, And so all these rumors began swirling about that the two of them were romantically involved. And this started, it's not really clear if they really even had a relationship or not, but Paul would spend long hours at the university, so much so that he had moved out of his home, like with his family, and to an apartment in Paris. And so his wife Mm. claimed that the reason for his move was that he had started an affair with Marie. And then at some Mm. point, someone claimed to break into his apartment and get these love letters between Paul and Marie. And they might have even been forged love letters, but they were sent to the French tabloids who then just basically had a field day like Marie Curie's breaking up a marriage with this other university scientist based when it might have just been all fake. Do people not have better things to do? I know. And it's just like, why is everyone going after Marie Curie? Like, what did she do to anyone? You know? 
Like, I'm sure they, they, they nobody was going after him as much um, as they were her. No. Or were they? I don't... I mean, his life sucked, too. So, like... Oh, okay. <laughs> the, I mean, the, the tabloids were, like, publishing things, like, how could... Again, like, how could this man leave his nice French Catholic wife for this Polish, like, anti-Catholic woman, like, just being very weird about her like yeah. polish like non-catholic identity and uh, it was strange so much so that like they riled up an angry mob of people they're like they riled people up so much that an angry mob showed up at marie curie's house and were like throwing things at it and so she what is wrong with people i don't know and so she had to like leave she had to take her daughters um and they went to briefly live with, like, another professor at the university. However, it seemed like France, the French people were, for some reason, just rejecting Marie Curie at this time. Um, even though she, they should have viewed her as, like, a genius and as bringing, like, you know, great things to their country, like, whatever. Yes. Uh, yeah. So she received news the same year that she was going to get another Nobel Prize. And this time it would be in chemistry for Aha, second. Yeah, for her earlier discoveries. <laughs> so it was kind of a combined Nobel Prize for her and Pierre's early discoveries of radium and polonium, but then also for mm. her work isolating the metallic form of radium, which is what she did um, in the years after Pierre's death. And so, yeah. so while some people say this Nobel was redundant, like you were pointing out, in 1903, the Nobel was worded such that the radium-polonium discovery weren't included, right? And mm -hmm. so it really is a separate prize for just these... There are two separate prizes for these two amazing discoveries, one in physics and one in chemistry. Yes. And um, the Nobel Prize website says that chemists considered the discovery and isolation of radium um, was the greatest event in chemistry since the discovery of oxygen. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty big deal. So pretty – it's – yeah, it's a big deal. So, however, in France, the news of her second Nobel Prize was completely overshadowed by the scandal with Paul Langevin. Man, were cool about sex <laughs> dude it was so dramatic that paul langvin challenged a, the newspaper editor to a duel yes 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 <laughs> that's hardcore it ended up being a farce which i didn't know what that meant but it's like they met up for the duel but then once they turned around nobody shot their gun so it's like okay <laughs> well that's good i appreciate that so it was a chaotic time. This, like, the year she won their second Nobel Prize was like one of the most dramatic times in her life, I think. Um, yeah. Because not only was. Like, can't you guys just let me enjoy my Nobel Prize without getting yeah, exactly. all up in my business? So not only. Can't I just have this one thing? <laughs> So she had also fallen ill, likely from exposure to so much radiation, and needed mm -hmm. a kidney surgery. 
And so for some time, oh she just decided for all of like, not for most of 1912, I think she um just isolated herself from the public and she began going by her maiden name again so that people couldn't find her. And she and her daughters briefly stayed with their her friend, uh, Hertha Ayrton in England while she recovered from a kidney surgery that she had to undergo. Mm-hmm. And she just didn't do any research. Like, it was just, you know, she really did take a break. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I have... That's probably good. She's like, I have two motherfucking Nobel Prizes, and I'm going to take a break, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm the only person to ever get two yeah. Nobel Prizes, so I'm going to take a break. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Eventually, though, she moved back to Paris and began working in the lab again. And she started using Curie, but she would no longer see Paul Langevin. Um, You know, still no one knows if they really had a relationship like that or not. I think it was just like, let's just not bother. Let's just not stir this up again. (laughs) Um, And she continued to work and design and build the Radiant Institute which would finish construction mm-hmm. in 1914. I think she also spent some time in Warsaw opening a research institute there, but I didn't find that much about that, at least not in the articles I was reading. Mm-hmm. In the fall of 1914, though, right when the Radium Institute was uh, finishing construction, World War I started, and France... Or France became involved in World War One when Germany bombed Paris. And so uh, all of the people who were set to work in her lab at the Radium Institute in Paris were drafted to war because it was pretty much just men who were like trained mm-hmm. to work in the lab at that time. And so Radium Institute put on hold. With no one to help her research in Paris, Marie decides that she's going to just do whatever she can to help in the war. So one idea she had, which was pretty genius, was to implement x-rays on the battlefield to aid doctors in surgeries to remove gunshots or to visualize, like, broken bones. And so convinced... That's awesome. Yeah, convinced that this was a good idea, the French government made her the director of the Red Cross Radiology Service, and she began seeking out money from friends and uh, vans from automakers <laughs> to um, okay, yeah, to set up these mobile X-ray units. Like they basically mm-hmm. just put X-rays in a van and drove them, yeah, <laughs> to like the battlefield. Makes, it checks yeah, out. yeah. Um, and so even though Marie didn't know how to drive or use X-rays, she quickly taught herself how to do both, which is like. Mm-hmm. crazy to me that she didn't know how to use an x-ray at this point but or she didn't know how to use it to like look at a broken bone you know what i mean um well i mean she hadn't really worked on x-rays right so yeah not... yeah i was just surprised she but, never um, uh she hadn't worked on x-rays i guess i don't know yeah that's fair and then she so she taught herself how to drive and use the machines and then she also taught her se- then 17-year-old daughter, Irene. And so with the aid of a doctor, they drove to battlefields, the three of them, and began treating wounded soldiers. Um, like, mm-hmm. um, And these be- machines became so important, and the two women were so well-known, that the soldiers began calling the vans little curies, 
like these little, they just, I don't know. And so, of course, neither of them, um, neither Irene or Marie, like, knew the damages or dangers of x-rays. And we're just being exposed Uh, to uh them as they're treating soldiers for, like, many months. Yeah. And then, so they couldn't do... Probably doesn't complement the radiation. Yeah. And then to to really make this um, a more like they couldn't do this all on their own, obviously. Um, and Marie had had s- set it up that there were now twenty vans that could go out and treat soldiers, and almost two hundred stationary machines at different treatments areas in in France. And so at the Radium Institute, Marie began teaching other women how to use the machines, Hmm. eventually training about 150 women in x-ray technology so that they could really, like, expand this new, uh, not business, but, like, you know, treatment regime that Marie had come up with. Mm Mm-hmm. New way to, you know, help the women during the, the war. And then once she had more time to, once she had trained all these other women to do the work that she and Irene had been doing, she had more time to dedicate to other work. So she began researching another idea of hers on radiotherapy, in which doctors could inject radon into specific tissues to sterilize wounds or kill disease tissue. So, um... Hmm. Radon is like a radioactive gas emitted by radium. And so she just got a gram of radium that she had collected or or been given or at some point. She took it to her lab and she began extracting, like sitting in the lab for hours on end, extracting radon, this radioactive gas from radon, radium. Mm. And she doesn't seem good. No, not safe at all. She <laughs> collected it into these thin centimeter long tubes that would fit into needles. And then so she would send the tubes to doctors who could put them into needles and like use them to treat wounded soldiers by basically killing diseased infected tissues. Um, and oh, man. yeah, so she did know that radon could stare could kill tissue so it is kind of a weird it's still not quite clear why she thought it was okay to expose herself to all of this radioactivity when she knew it could destroy tissues but uh, you know i feel like she at that at this point just didn't was, care like or if like, you realize like, the mission's so important. Like, the science is so important. Yeah. That's, like, the driving force in her life. Yeah. And she's already been exposed to so much. It's like, if this gets me, this gets me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, sh- so that was a pretty, like, remarkable new therapy that she invented mm-hmm. just out of the blue. Like, or kind of out of this great need. And then, last but not least, during this time, she offered her Nobel Prize medals to the government, who was asking citizens for all of their, like, gold and stuff, because they needed to, they just needed medals, and they needed money, essentially. Um, Yeah. 
and they actually turned her down. <laughs> so after everything, they were just like, no, like, we're sorry we've done this to you. <laughs> like, you're actually <laughs> you keep your awards. trying to save us, all of us, so you could keep those. Um, but she, even after they turned her down, she then used a lot of her Nobel Prize money to purchase war bonds. So, to, like, despite everything mm-hmm. the French public had done and, like, yeah, all, you know, all these societies kind of rejecting her, she still, you know, felt like she didn't feel like animosity toward, towards the French people. Like, she wanted to help them. And mm-hmm. when the war ended in 1918, she continued to teach about the use of radiology in wartime. Um until her lab at the Radium Institute was finally ready to begin work in 1919. And that's where, yeah. All right. Part four. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So after the war, let's get to it. Mm -hmm. All right. So after the war in 1919, I mean, kind of all throughout her life, Marie Curie had stage fright and fear of public speaking. She was very much a, you know, head down, get work done person rather than a Mm -hmm. a public speaker. But in order to help fund the Radium Institute after the war, she agreed to give an interview for an American women's magazine. I don't know what the name of it was. I couldn't find that out. To discuss the needs of the Radium Institute and the important work they would be resuming now that the war was over. So in this interview, she emphasized the fact that although the Radium Institute had more radium than almost any other in the world, they had a single gram of radium. Research and therapy centers in the U.S. apparently had 50 times as much radium. Wow. I wonder why. Well, from all their research and stuff like that for the different hospitals and... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They could buy it. Yeah. Marie said that her most fervent wish was for a second gram of radium. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I know, I know. I didn't mention this, but during the war, she transferred the gram, like, between places, like, when they thought maybe the Germans would destroy Paris, they transferred it to another city, like, this one gram of radium. I mean, I think at that point it was worth $100,000 or something. Oh, my God. Insane. Like, it is really expensive. So, yeah, precious stuff. That's crazy. Yeah, very precious. Yeah. So this need led to the magazine editor organizing a Marie Curie radium campaign, which was uh, helped by wealthy American women and scientists in America. And the campaign succeeded and led to Curie having now two grams of radium. Woohoo! Um, and also <laughs> so funny. Curie writing an autobiographical book, which in the long run helped her, helped her long-term fundraising and support having this book. Right. So the U.S. really wanted her to come visit. And Mm -hmm. Marie Curie agreed to travel to the U.S. on condition that no one mention the Langevin affair in print. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, she's over it. come to the U.S., but do not write about this. I'm sick and tired of it. She has two Nobel Prizes. She's, like, invented all this cool stuff. Yeah. Exactly. So she traveled to the U.S. with her daughters to drum up support for the Radium Institute. And this was like a mm. six-week whirlwind tour. 
Wow. And she was surprised by the adoration she received. So they had receptions in her honor at Carnegie Hall. They had an exhibit about her at the American Museum of Natural History. She wow. was given honorary degrees and associated ceremonies at Yale and a variety of other different colleges. And mm-hmm. then the president of the United States himself, Warren Harding, presented her with America's gift of uranium. Uranium. Yeah. yeah. So he gave her that one gram of radium. So soon after arriving in the U.S. to do this whirlwind tour, Marie had her arm in a sling due to the strain of shaking so many people's hands. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, probably a combination of her ill health and... Yeah, her weakened state. Exactly. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so sometimes Marie would be too exhausted to go to another function or receive another honorary degree, and so one of her daughters would step in and go to the event. hmm Now, the French, seeing how much praise Marie was getting in America... They tried to award her with the Legion of Honor to make up for their kind of past shittiness and oversights, but Marie right. refused the award. Wow. She said, I, I, I don't have the quote here, but she said something like, I don't need an award. I need a lab. <laughs> she still just needs a lab. Just give, just give me a lab space. Give me a lab. God damn it. Um, Everyone keeps giving her awards. No one's giving her a lab. She specifically has said she needs a lab for 50 million years. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So in 1920, Marie teamed up with a number of other colleagues to create the Curie Foundation, whose mission was to provide both the scientific and medical divisions of the Radium Institute with adequate resources. So they were pretty much like the funding team. And so they would go and talk to politicians across multiple countries to emphasize the importance of this work and to get funding for the Institute. Under Marie's direction, the Radium Institute became one of the world's foremost centers for the study of radioactivity. And the center also measured the radium content of various medical products and they did oh. this as a service to help protect patients and doctors to try to like the FDA of radioactivity, you know, uh, okay, making okay. sure every, or the EPA or no, no, no the FDA, yeah, yeah, making sure everything <laughs> had the the right amount of radium. Actually, yeah. being able to tell how much it had. Cool. Yeah. In 1920, medical problems began to seriously afflict Marie again. So she mm-hmm. had a double cataract, which caused yeah um, both of her eye lenses to become cloudy. And we now know that this can be due to exposure from radi- mm-hmm. radiation. Yeah. And during this time, she could hardly see at all. She had to write oh, her yeah. lecture notes in these, like, huge letters, and her daughters yeah. had to guide her around. Oh, my god! However, after four surgeries, she was able to see more clearly and resu- resume normal life. Did she know at that point that it was due to the radiation? She never admitted ever, right? <sighs> That it was I radiation. Didn't find, yeah, I didn't find yeah. anything to suggest I don't think she, she did. did. Yeah. But so the dangers of radiation were clearly not quite understood at this time. True. And in 1925, she participated in the French Academy of Medicine's Commission on Radiation, where mm-hmm. they recommended the use of lead screens and blood tests to those working with radioactive materials. Oh my gosh. And so Marie did have scientists in her labs at the Radium Institute get blood tests. Um, 
but she also urged them to do exercise and get out into the fresh air to help minimize the effects of radiation. So right. she isn't going to do anything. <laughs> yeah, just go outside after the radiation has yeah. <laughs> done all the damage. <laughs> yeah, they just they didn't understand, like, I mean, they didn't even know about DNA or anything, right? So they can't understand no, not, yeah. what the radiation would be mm-hmm. doing. Or, doing yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. Ugh. I mean, mm-hmm. she seems to kind of have ignored. I don't know if she took blood tests herself. You know, right. she had people in her labs do it, but I don't know. So... During the remainder of Marie's life, she published 31 papers and books. She continued to diligently research how to isolate polonium and actinium. Mm -hmm. However, her main focus was now being the director of the Radium Institute. And she interacted with with a few dozen researchers that were all working on various questions about radioactivity. And Irene and her husband, Frederick uh, Holyot, Joliot, I don't know. When whenever we cover Irene, we can figure out we'll how figure to pronounce out. it. <laughs> yeah, but they Julio. were among researchers making breakthroughs in radioactivity right. at the Radium Institute at this time. Yeah. Curie also found time in the last 12 years of her life to serve on the Commission of Intellectual Cooperation of the League of Nations. So here she mm. helped establish an international bibliography of scientific papers because at the time you could actually have a catalog of all the papers yeah, that had been published. Yeah, that's bonkers. Uh, I guess we have, stamp- like, yeah, online catalogs, you could f- but yeah. it's not, like, yeah. Not the same. No. She developed standards <laughs> for international scientific scholarship and protected researchers' ownership of intellectual rights for their discoveries. Yeah, that's really cool. But her health continued to decline, And specialists couldn't really diagnose her problem because really nobody before her had been exposed to that much radiation. (laughs) Um, Oh, my gosh. Right? Like, they just had no idea what it was. Yeah, I can't. I guess, like, no one else would have been exposed more than her, except Pierre, if he had survived. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. So one doctor suspected she had tuberculosis, while another doctor diagnosed her with an incurable blood disorder. But -hmm. what we now know is that Marie died on July 4th of aplastic anemia, which is a rare condition linked to high levels of exposure to radiation. Wow. Now that's sad. um, Yeah. mm -hmm. So Marie's body is still considered radioactive. (laughs) <laughs> due to such high and prolonged exposure to radium and other right. radioactive materials. So her coffin was lined with an inch of lead. <gasps> oh, my God. And she's buried in the French Pantheon. They must have, like, I know that they moved uh, her yeah. and Pierre's body. So that, did they put her in a different coffin or was she originally? No, put? this was the coffin they put her in. So they moved her to the French Pantheon, I think, like. A lot later. I don't remember when. Yeah. But a, yeah. a lot later in time. And at that mm-hmm. point, they knew a lot more about radiation. And so at right. that point, they put her in a lead co- lead line okay. coffin. Okay. And I'm guessing yeah. they did the same thing with Pierre because he's also in the French Pantheon. Yeah. 
which is so additionally the f- it's so crazy i just like that the french were like yeah we messed this one up <laughs> like yeah like we, we really, really should have <laughs> given them a little bit more respect before uh-huh. and after their deaths <laughs> yeah anyway so in addition to her body being radioactive, her lab notebooks, which are housed in right. France's Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, are also stored in lead-lined boxes. Wow. That's and incredible. people can be granted access to look at her notebooks, but they have to sign a liability waiver and wear protective gear to look at her notebooks. Wow, that's incredible. And that, that, I, so the half-life of radium is 1,600 years. Oh, okay. So in another thousand. <laughs> yeah, for the foreseeable future, yeah, Murray no one. and all of her notebooks and all of pretty much her lab equipment is mm-hmm. going to be extremely radioactive. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but what a legacy. Just be like, what a legacy. You can't even come near my body. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just try to come near my body. <laughs> I'm just so scienced. Like, I'm so full of science. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of in conclusion, although Marie Curie is likely the most famous female scientist in history, history has not always been kind to her. No. Uh, From minimizing her role in the discoveries of radiation and radium, to sensationalizing her private life, to either demonizing her for not being enough of a mother or misconstruing Mm -hmm. her as primarily a wife and mother and like a helper to Pierre. Mm -hmm. History has finally seen her, I think, as this multifaceted scientist and real person that she was. Yeah, exactly. um, She's an awesome, awesome scientist and like so much stuff I didn't know about her. Same. And I feel glad like sometimes I feel like I read about some of these people and it is – like, oh, their discoveries may have been overstated or mm-hmm. their contributions aren't exactly clear. But with her story, I I don't feel like her contributions have been overstated at all. Like, I think, no. if anything, they've been understated. Even today, there are people mm-hmm. who argue she doesn't deserve, like, the Nobel Prizes or whatever, which is insane. So. Yeah. Tell everybody you know that she's amazing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope everybody liked this two part episode and yeah. didn't mind our new kind of style for this <laughs> yeah. multi part, very important influential. There's just so feminist. much about her. Yeah. There's no yeah, way we had we to could've... we had to collab. Yeah, totally. And we don't we're not doing a women who work this week because we're just it's all about Marie. <laughs> yeah, let's just let her have her moment. Yeah. Let's let her have her moment. And, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, as as always, thanks everybody so much for listening. And if you like this podcast, please, uh, you know, either subscribe or share it with a friend. Let people know about it. We really appreciate spreading the news by word of mouth so we can reach new people who can then learn about these awesome women that they might yeah, not know that much totally. about. Mm-hmm. And thanks to Caitlin Friesen for our amazing art. We still have stickers, so you can um, check that out on our website, stemfatelpod.com, if you're interested in any of the the ladies that we have stickers on. 
And then thanks to Artichoke for our awesome theme music. And thank you again for listening. Yeah. Um, and I know it's been a while, but you should. Never forget. Never, never forget. forget that you should always oh, go, go stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.